I'm Kelly Coffey, CEO of City National Bank. Our Conversations podcast features in-depth interviews with innovative leaders from business, entertainment, and nonprofits. Listen and learn how to succeed in what I'm calling the next normal. Now is the time to rethink, reinvent, and renew yourself and your business. Hello, everyone. Today's conversation will be a crystal ball gazing session into Hollywood with one of today's most impactful minds in entertainment. He was formerly the editorial director of The Hollywood Reporter and has written for Esquire, Details, and ESPN the magazine. He's also a founding partner of Puck, where he covers the inside conversation in Hollywood with a very popular newsletter called What I'm Hearing. Today's guest also makes frequent appearances on television and radio as an expert on the entertainment industry and previously served as host of Close Up with the Hollywood Reporter, a celebrity roundtable show that airs on Sundance TV and Hulu. His insight and expertise guide the industry where many of our top clients at City National thrive. It's my pleasure to welcome Matt Bellany. Hi, how are you? It's great to have you today. So I want to start a little bit with uh, your background, because before making the shift into journalism, you were a full-time entertainment attorney. So um, that's a pretty big pivot. What what prompted you to pivot into writing and content creation? You know, it's interesting. I had had a journalism background before law school. I was an editor in my college newspaper, and I was doing some stringing for New York Times and some other publications in like the mid late 90s. Um, Went to law school because I figured that if I didn't do it then, I probably would never do it. And I was always interested in entertainment. So I made sure that I came to Los Angeles, went to USC for law school and worked at an entertainment law firm for about four and a half years. You know, the the nice thing about it was it gave me a cross-section of information about the entertainment industry. I really got to dive into a lot of different businesses, everything from where the money is made on a film over the lifetime of the film to how a deal is put together in television where you're accounting for international sales and all of the the other ancillary revenue streams. Everything like that really helped me to where I started to think, you know what, I think I wanna get back into media And I figured I would go to The Hollywood Reporter. It could be a good transition job for me. I'd probably end up having to move to New York to to be in, quote, real media. And I ended up going there to initially cover the entertainment law world. And I ended up just kind of climbing the ladder there. We got bought by a big private equity investment firm. We got turned from a daily trade newspaper into a weekly glossy trade magazine. Um, We started breaking news a lot, and I really got to manage a team of journalists there, and it was appealing to me. And I ended up staying for 15 years and becoming the editor-in-chief, the editorial director, and uh, running it for about four years. That's a fun pivot, if I I have to say. And you get to stay in L.A., too. Yeah, and I will say I, I use my legal background a lot. I mean, everything from the knowledge that I picked up at the, the law firm to, you know, evaluating stories. Every, every day I would use my background, not to mention the fact that I knew all the lawyers around town and they, you know, we had a shorthand where they could call me and we could have a real conversation. I find that lawyers are generally skeptical of journalists, but if you can speak their language and you know what they're talking about and understand the legal issues at play, um, it goes a long way in media. And it's true. And they are they are in the middle of everything that's happening. So a really smart strategy as well. Um, so you also became a professor at USC's Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism in 2020. Congratulations, first of all. Yeah, that was fun. I, you know, I had when I left Hollywood Reporter, I had a kind of 
time where I wasn't really able to compete with my previous outlet. So, you know, the, the people at Annenberg, specifically a professor there, Mary Murphy, invited me to teach a course on entertainment journalism with her. And it was really a great experience, even though it was via Zoom, because it was during the height of the pandemic. But um, we had great students and really smart questions. And it was nice to kind of take a, a step back and look at this stuff from from a overhead perspective on how the sausage gets made in media. As you point out, it's, I mean, media is evolving at, at a faster pace than ever. And, you know, all of the new creator-led brands like Puck, which you're, you're obviously leading, um, how, how are you thinking about how the new challenger brands compete with the more traditional legacy outlets and, and you know, and how, how people are consuming media has very changed. And is that, is that really what's driving it or is it something else? Absolutely. And I think about this topic a lot because it, it's obviously important to what I'm doing now. I mean, I left Hollywood Reporter in 2020 and started to think about the evolution of a lot of these attacker brands that are going after legacy media. And, you know, I was at a 90-year-old brand. Hollywood Reporter had been reinvented and had, had was doing well, but it was a 90-year-old brand. And I was thinking, like, what would I do if I were starting a media brand today? What would I not do? What would I do? What would be the freedoms? What would be the limitations? And what we ended up thinking about with my partners in New York that we, we started the brand with was to meld a little bit of this creator economy that is so dominant in video to the journalism space. Most media outlets are um, big brands that have staff writers that, you know, you, you are a staffer at the New York Times or you're a staffer at the Hollywood Reporter, but the writers don't have any skin in the game. They're not, you know, they're employees. They're not owners. And that's very different from the creator economy, where if you are big on YouTube, you are your own business. Yep. And there's been this evolution right now where on the left-hand side, there are the big dominant brands that are getting bigger and the Times is doing very well and some of these others. And then on the other side, there's this wild west of creators like the people that are going to Substack and launching their own newsletters there or they're on YouTube or they have their own website. What we thought is what if there's a happy medium here where we take what the economics of the creator economy have given people, but we attach it to a more traditional newsroom where you get services like legal and marketing and editing and a product that looks great and HR and a salary mm -hmm. and things like that, that, that people, that journalists like when they are writing for big publications, but you get equity. You get a piece of the brand that you're building. You get a salary. You get a portion of the revenue that is coming in. And that's really the model that we started with first with the Puck brand is we're trying to recruit journalists who have reached a point where they're providing more value to their outlet than they're receiving. Yep. You know, a lot of journalists, they need that. You need the New York Times to have somebody return yeah. your phone call. Yeah. Totally get that. You need the Hollywood Reporter so that people know you when you go to a premiere. Totally fine. But a lot of journalists get to the point where they don't need that anymore in the in the area in which they cover. They become part of the community. They become someone that has a brand on their own. And I found that I was in that space. I didn't need the Hollywood Reporter brand to get my phone call returned right. um, most of the time. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes I do. But um, but. I felt that if you can transfer some of that value to the journalists themselves, it would ultimately create a better product for readers because the journalists had skin in the game and they were motivated to do their best work. And that's really what we're 
what we're pursuing with this model with Puck. And to do it well, you need to do it in a subscription context. Mm -hmm. The advertising-based media world right now is very challenged. So much of the advertising in the media world is sucked up by the tech companies. Do you think traditional print media is gone or that they just have to evolve their business model? It's, it's just about evolving. I mean, the New York Times is a print brand and they are very successfully evolving into a digital first and ultimately digital only at some point brand with, with you know, new digital verticals like games and cooking. And uh, now they just bought The Athletic, which is a digital only sports publication. So the brands that are going to be successful are the ones that make that transition over. And a lot of them won't. I mean, there's a, there are a lot of print brands. We've already seen them go out of business, but a lot of brands that, that had the majority of their revenue from print won't make that transition, but a lot will. And I think that the smart ones are pivoting and doing it in a, in a, in a compelling way. Yeah, if they have followers. So would, what would your advice be to someone, you know, what, to the college kids you, you taught or young professionals that want to start a career in journalism today? Um, I would say just start doing it. So would you go to a traditional or you would go the new route? Or just start with a brand? No, I, I would, wherever, first of all, wherever will take you that will allow you to build up your personal brand and get skills and be able to, uh, you know, to, to learn how to do it, whether it's on your own personal blog or whether it's as an intern at the New York Times or anywhere that you can, you can actually do it. The other thing that I've found very valuable in my career as a journalist is get skills in something else. A lot of the journalists I've found that have been very successful are ones that come from other places. They were a, an engineer first, or they you know, worked in pharmaceuticals first, and then they crossed over and started covering the industry as a journalist. When you get, when you're on the inside and you, uh, you gain the, the knowledge and skills from the inside of a business, it becomes a lot easier to cover that business and to grow your cachet and your contact list because you're an insider. You've got a lot going on now. What are you most excited about that you're working on this year in 2022? For the brand or for the industry? Uh, well, let's first start with the brand. The brand for us, we want to grow. You know, we've had a we've had some initial success in our subscribers and um, and our advertisers. And don't get me wrong, advertising is still a good business if you can have a targeted real audience. We want to be a hybrid with subscription and advertising. Mm. We also do want to do events. Um, and for the industry, this is going to be a just watershed year. I mean, we are going to see the so-called streaming wars really get brutal. I think over the next six to eight months. I, I want to get to that. But before I get to that, I just also want to talk about your newsletter because it's become one of the most exciting things to hit my inbox recently, for sure. <laughs> Any other new projects you want to highlight here for 2022? Sure. When I launched that newsletter, that was the first thing we put we put our toe in the water with when we're launching the new brand. And I initially sent a link to 300 of my closest friends and said, hey, this is what I'm doing now. Um, I knew I would probably get a little bit of attention just because of my previous job as to what I was doing next. And I really wanted to take all of my background and all of my knowledge over the years and write what people are really talking about in Hollywood. And I didn't feel that, that was being covered by the traditional outlets. And I know that because I used to run one and I knew all the reasons why that wasn't the case. And that was what I talked about before, about learning what was being done, what was not being done and why and how to fill that void. And I thought that the newsletter format, which is a more 
personal interaction with your reader than writing an article or a magazine piece or something like that. You're, you're sending something directly to someone's inbox. And I am not a good writer. I will always say that I am not, you know, I worked with great writers. I know what great writers are. I am not a great writer. So I write this newsletter as if I am having a conversation with a friend over lunch. It's casual. You know, I will occasionally drop an F-bomb if it is warranted. I will call people out. I will say what I think is really going on. (laughs) And that has been, I think, compelling for people that are not used to seeing that kind of coverage in this space in particular. Yeah, I think so. And and also when you talk about brand, it personalizes the brand. So when when you're sending me emails, when I'm hearing that, I feel like I know you, even though I might not know you. Right, right. right. That's the thing is people were like, when I got initial responses from people, they were like, finally, this is your actual voice. Yeah. This is not, you know, this is what I remember when I would see you at a premiere party and we would talk for, you know, outside the premiere, not what the, you know, whitewashed four levels of editing trade story was. <laughs> exactly. and, I, and I, and I think that that's the sign of a popular columnist is when you do feel like you, you kind of know the person. Yeah, I completely agree. All right. So let's talk about the industry because there's so much going on and you talked about streaming wars. So look, let's start from like, when, when you think about how the pandemics changed Hollywood, whether it's from what's going on with talent relations, we've had some interesting uh, issues there. And then, you know, just streaming services exploding and the debate around release windows. So how, how, what do you think that's done to the industry? Talk a little bit about that. I think we're going to see future for this year, especially we're going to see experiments. Uh, Warner Brothers caught a lot of flack for putting all of their 2021 movies directly on HBO Max yep. the same day they were in theaters. Um, we saw Scarlett Johansson sue Disney when they did that for Black Widow um, just this past week, we saw Village Roadshow, the producer of Matrix 4, which came out in December. They sued Warner Brothers because they said that Warner's destroyed the value of the movie by putting it on HBO Max the same day. These are all signs of a shift. The business is shifting its economics, and the priorities for the studios are their affiliated streaming services. That is all they care about. They don't care about box office. They don't care about, you know, home video down the line. Yep. They care about building up subscriber numbers because that is what Wall Street cares about. And Wall Street is rewarding and punishing these companies based on their subscriber numbers. So, you know, when Netflix missed their projections for next quarter, the stock absolutely tanked. Yep. Brutal. And that's a scary thing, not just for Netflix, but for everyone in Hollywood, because they have hitched their wagon to this one metric of success. And who knows if it's going to be a growth machine like everyone expects it's going to be. What if they all cannibalize each other? What if the total addressable market for the world is not billions of people that want video services, but much less than that? Nobody knows. I mean, there are projections, you know, smart analysts and banks like you guys. I mean, you guys are, are helping these companies try to see the future of what's going on, but nobody really knows what the future holds. And these companies are all now in this business all in, and they've got to make this work. Yep, they really do. So you last year, I think it was last December on Squawk Box, predicted the great theater contraction, right? A shrinkage in the movie theater industry, a studio shift to streaming, as we just talked about. Are there any franchises beyond maybe Spider-Man or the Marvel that you think will actually get people back into theaters? Like, what are you thinking about it today? Yeah, I, I think there are 
A-list movie franchises that still can generate theatrical box office. You mentioned Marvel. I think DC, there's a Batman movie coming out. I think that will do very well. Yep. Um, you know, some of the, I think Top Gun, the sequel to Top Gun. That'll get me out. Been, <laughs> which has been delayed a long time. I think that is going to be okay. Jurassic World is probably okay. Uh, those are the A-list movie franchises that have endured. Yeah. And then there are the the movies that appeal to very energized segments of the audience, like horror movies, which tend to bring out younger, more diverse audiences that have been pandemic resistant, so to speak, meaning they are willing to go to theaters regardless of the pandemic status. And I think those are going to be fine, even as we come out of the, the pandemic, because there is an experience of going to a horror movie with your friends that I think will endure in a streaming dominant world. Um, I think certain kids movies will also be okay uh, because you can, yeah, I've got a five-year-old. We took him to sing too because we wanted an afternoon activity and he loves it and he got popcorn. And like that I think is, is and, and we still watched it at home later because he wants to watch it five times, but we went to that theatrical experience because of it. I do think that there is going to be a contraction in the theater business, pretty significant one, because there's not going to be the volume of releases in theaters. And most of those those movies that, you know, propped up the theaters are going to either be streaming first or not happen at all. And the theaters are going to need to revise their business and focus on the premium experience. Going to the multiplex and having a bad experience just to see a movie is not going to be enough anymore. It's going to have to be. That's why IMAX. IMAX has been a huge success story throughout the pandemic because people still want to go and have that premium experience in the theater. They don't want the bad mall multiplex that doesn't give them a premium experience. And they want it to be different than the TV. I mean, I, you know, I picks another one where you're going and it's a night. Totally. And now, you know, I pick had some problems because they're, model was not not the greatest business model, but they have emerged. I think they declared bankruptcy and they've emerged. And, you know, the, the one in here in L.A., at least, it's always crowded. It's always sold out. Um, so I think but that type of model makes a lot more sense than the theaters that need that traffic to sustain themselves. Yep. Um, and, you know, it's been tough. I, I, a friend just sent me a link from a, a theater in the Embarcadero in San Francisco that just closed. Um, there are theaters in Brooklyn that closed. You're going to see more of this going on throughout the year. Yeah. And what do you think has more longevity today? Uh, like a, a, you know, if, if you can even call something a heritage TV property that was adapted for streaming, it's sort of like, the, what's the difference between movies and TV anymore that, you know, it's how many episodes there are, I guess, but, um, <laughs> or, 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 you know, or, you know, what do you think the original idea? I mean, you look at net, the squid Netflix, the squid game, or WWE on Peacock, it's pretty incredible. What 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 do you think will last? Or do you, you know, or are we kind of through the pandemic in some respects and this is what it's going to be? Uh, that's a great question. Um, because it gets to the the question of what is a franchise. Mm-hmm. And I think nobody knows the answer to that, but there are some troubling signs. If a movie does not come out in theaters and have that event style marketing campaign and the feeling of success when a movie hits, it's really difficult to create a franchise around that because as much as people are watching hours viewed on Netflix and you know the streaming services are, are the first choice for most content now, it's very hard to create a franchise in that environment. You don't, you don't see the 
the flywheel, so to speak, around them, consumer products and theme parks and, uh, you know, five sequels and, you know, those kinds of things that have really propped up the traditional media companies for decades now. And I think over the next decade, you're going to see Netflix struggle to create those franchises. They have big plans. They want there to be Netflix theme parks. They want there to be consumer products. They're already starting that. They want all of these things that are that are revenue generators for the traditional studios, but Netflix is not Disney. And Disney has that trove of beloved intellectual property because people have the association with these theatrical releases. And I don't. I just don't know. And there was an interesting study in the Wall Street Journal about whether people could recall what they had seen on Netflix versus what they had seen in theaters. And people can't recall it. It just comes and goes. It's like, oh, there's a Chris Hemsworth movie. Oh, there's Selling Sunset. Oh, there's Squid Game. It's all this one mix of content. But if you get up off your couch and go see an Avengers movie on a Friday night, that sticks with you. Yeah, it's the experience. I think that's one thing that's interesting. So let's let's shift back a little bit to um, the news because there's been a lot written about how the business model for news and information is broken. We talked a little bit about it in terms of not being accurate, what you see on Facebook, et cetera. So talk a little bit more about Puck and how you're really reinvigorating the information cycle in, in Hollywood. How's that, how's that shifting? Well, what we're focused on is, is having domain experts. So we don't want to have 12 different reporters covering a subject and churning out breaking news all the time. Our model is we have the writers who really know what's going on and we give them the venue to talk to their sources to produce what we think are definitive analyses of what's going on. And then we bundle those together with writers in other arenas of politics, technology, entertainment, finance. And then we have a kind of elevated content offering where you know that at least you may not be interested in everything, but you know that it's coming from people who are insiders in those areas. And that's what we hope will be a distinguishing factor from the outlets that pump out dozens of news headlines a day, some of them from writers who may be interns or might be junior people or might be senior people that know what's going on, but they're in this content mix that you may not know, even though it's a brand you know, you may not know the writers. We are very author driven. So you know if you are getting a column from a writer like William Cohan, who was a banker himself, he knows everything there is to know about finance. He knows all the people. And you may not agree with his take, but you at least know that he's coming from that world and has access to the people that run it. Um, and I hope that I'm the same way in entertainment where you may not agree with my take, but you at least know that I'm getting access to the people that, that have the inside knowledge so that I can formulate my take based on the right information. And yep. that's so important in this environment right now where the trust in media is at all-time lows. People don't believe what they see because they are mostly seeing articles that come to them via algorithms or via their phone or social media or the crazy uncle who sends you an article that backs up his own yeah. political <laughs> beliefs. You know, that, that kind of stuff. And it contributes to this morass of media that we're really hoping to break through. I like that. And it's an expertise take on it, which is the way City National works, right? You're the entertainment bankers, that's all they do. So when they're you may or may not agree with something we 
you know, do, but, but we did it based on expertise as opposed to just a general banker that, you know, made a decision. So what about um, areas of opportunity in the journalism industry for consolidation? Are there things you're looking at there? Are there, are there uh, things you predict will happen since you're a big predictor too? It's a good question because there are legacy brands that I think might be ripe for tech companies to pick off. A good example is Barry Diller's company, IAC, is bought Meredith, which is a magazine publisher. They have People Magazine, and it's the old Time, Inc. magazines. And that's an interesting one because Barry Diller's IAC is a digital company. It has Match.com, Vimeo, a couple others, um, Daily Beast. And what we saw today, actually, is that they are doubling down on the print product for brands that they believe have a print future like Southern Living, Lifestyle Magazine, People. And then they're just getting rid of the print product for brands that they don't think has a, have a future, like Entertainment Weekly and In Style. And that's an example of consolidation that I think is probably smart, bringing a digital ethos to legacy brands. Um, you know, there's been a lot of speculation as to whether Condé Nast, which is the big magazine publisher, whether that could get bought by a company like Amazon or Apple to fuel their products, you know, if you if you could think about Apple, they have a news product, and they have been sort of platform agnostic as to the brands that they they work with. You know, everybody's on Apple News, but what if they own Condé Nast and they could reinvigorate some of those legacy magazines for the digital age and create a compelling digital product that would be served throughout the Apple universe? That could be interesting, and it's change. Condé Nast would probably be chump change for Apple. But, you know, Apple doesn't buy a whole lot of things. So those those types of things are interesting. You know, and then you see something like The New York Times buying The Athletic, which is a digital subscription sports publisher that fits well into the New York Times strategy, which has been to fund their news operation with ancillary services like cooking and games and now sports. And sports was a thing that the New York Times did not do well. It's one of the few things they, you know, they haven't really even tried to do general interest sports coverage lately. So The Athletic, I think, is a smart move for them if they can integrate it into the greater Times product and increase their subscription numbers. And that's the big North Star for all these companies. Yep. And they all need content. Well, mm-hmm. so Puck has landed a few big name sponsors during the beta launch. Amazon Studios, a Network, S3 Partners, Warner Media. You making some future plans for a Puck streaming service? <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> no, we actually... Video is like phase two or three for us, but um, but what those what those brand partners say is that we're reaching the right audience, and I do think that is the future of media right now. These catch-all brands from the Web two age that were like BuzzFeed and Vice and things that were trying to be gigantic next generation digital media outlets. Those outlets have sort of struggled in this shift of advertising to the tech companies. And I, I think that the sweet spot right now are brands that appeal to a dedicated and highly engaged audience for specific topics. And when you look at those sponsors that have come in, you know, we are reaching the elevated audience in entertainment and finance and politics. And those brands want to reach those audiences. 
That makes sense. That makes sense. So, so what about, so City National has been a longstanding partner of the Hollywood Reporters Annual Power Lawyers event, as we talked about. It celebrates top entertainment lawyers in America for everybody listening. And um, I know you launched it, Matt. So, and we talked a little bit about Puck having some plans for events. So what, what do you have in store post-pandemic? There will be some version of that. I don't know if it will focus specifically on lawyers, but there will be a, a very insidery kind of velvet rope event where we can showcase the brand and partners and allow a premium networking experience. That's where I think our sweet spot is. We're never going to do the massive, I shouldn't say never, but right now we're not going to do the massive celebrity driven, let's try to get on entertainment tonight style events. Like those are pretty well covered. Where our niche is in the in these industries, entertainment and finance and politics in Silicon Valley is the insider event where people can feel like they're coming together um, and doing, you know, I'm actually, I'm later this week, I'm hosting a dinner with a prominent producer where it's small. It's at his house. It's branded, but it's not a press event. It's off the record. The only mention of it will be in my newsletter. And those are the types of things that we are trying to curate and become the brand for the insiders when so many of these other outlets are trying to scale up and become the brand for outsiders. That's really our niche. Those will be great events. All right. So I, we all loved your 22 Surefile 100% Probable Hollywood Predictions for 2022 on Puck. It was yeah. incredibly informative, thought-provoking, obviously making all the rounds at, uh, at City National and beyond. And I love how you closed the first half of your predictions, cheekily noting, nobody knows anything, which is so true. I'm just trying to, I'm trying to, to set expectations here. I, I'm not saying that they're all going to come true, but some are already happening. You mentioned the theater contraction is already happening. I predicted more investments by the Obamas into their production company, and they made some hires that reflect that. So I'm, I'm doing okay so far. You're doing really well. You're a real trend forecaster. So give, give us a few more. What, what else do you think is going to impact the entertainment industry for seasons to come? I think the, the consolidation in the streaming world is very real, and it's going to have to happen. These streaming services are not going to all make it. Yeah. Um, the, you know, the two most likely for pickoff or merger would probably be Paramount Plus and Peacock. Paramount Plus is the Viacom CBS streaming service and Peacock is the NBC Universal streaming service. They have both struggled to gain an audience. Um, they're growing and they're doing better and they're finally investing in these services. And I think uh, it'll be interesting to see how well Peacock does with these Olympics because they're for the first time they are showing the entirety of the Olympics on Peacock. But ultimately, I just think they got into this too late and the others are keeping them at a distance and they will have to either sell or merge. Yeah. Do, do they have the scale to compete is the question. I, I Yeah. And I don't think they do, you know, at, at least not on the global scale. Yeah. You know, Disney is another one, another company to watch this year. I think that they have some big decisions to make about their own streaming ambitions. Disney Plus has sort of tapped out at the number of people who are interested in the family programming and the Star Wars and Marvel stuff. Um, they're going to have to either add some more general interest content to Disney Plus to, to raise the subscriber numbers, 
or they're going to need to merge Hulu and ESPN Plus into Disney Plus, which I think should ultimately happen. But there are some complications there. Hulu is still owned 30% by Comcast, so they'd have to be bought out. And, you know, there's there's content issues, too. It might be a little weird for some people to click on Disney Plus and see something like Pam and Tommy advertised on Disney Disney Plus. But, you know... It's already being advertised in the Disney bundle. And the problem is it it seems like such a simple thing, but just going outside the Disney app, having to click on Hulu, having to open another app and look for content there, that is an extra step that many consumers are not willing to take. And if you're looking at Disney Plus being a dominant Netflix style streaming service around the world, it probably has to have Hulu as a tile inside Disney Plus to click on and go to that. You can put a parental control on it. You can do whatever you want. You can upcharge, but I think it has to be one integrated service to really compete globally. Yeah, and how important is it for the brand to do that, right? People are starting to lose track of, wait, where do I watch that? I want to see that, you know, they're going after the show, as you told, but they don't know where to go. It's a real problem. It really is. It's a real problem. And there's not a, a quick fix for that. I mean, I know that, you know, the real platforms, Apple and Amazon, their play in the streaming game is they want to be the hub for everything. You already go to Apple and Amazon when you want to do pay-per-view, right? Absolutely. If a movie's on pay-per-view, you don't go, you don't go to, you know, Netflix or Disney. Those are closed universes. Mm -hmm. Amazon and Apple are open universes where there's other stuff there. So they, I think, want to be that hub where you can go and get all your services. Um, we're not there yet. And, you know, the others are, are creating their own. But they have the best chance, I think, of being the great aggregator, in my opinion. The place where ultimately it just becomes TV. Like you would turn on your TV, your cable would just go on. Maybe at some point that is Amazon or Apple that you open and all the services are available there. And it becomes essentially like a digital cable company. Yeah. And of course they're competing on a broader level. So, you know, they're, they're motivated by very different metrics. Absolutely. I mean, it doesn't matter. I mentioned Apple, uh, you know, Apple bought a movie at Sundance for $25 million last year and everyone laughed. It it was far more than any movie had ever sold for at a film festival, but you know what? That movie was Coda and it just got six Oscar nominations, or almost six. And that's chump change for them. Tim Cook got to tweet about it, and he'll probably mention it on the earnings call. For a movie, for a company that is 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 generating tens of billions of dollars in profit each quarter, what does $25 million at a film festival mean? You know, so that's that's the whole calculus here, that it makes it incredibly frustrating for some of their rivals in Hollywood, but it makes it an interesting dynamic, especially for talented people. So let's just let's also talk about Web3 or the metaverse, right, which has been a huge um, buzzword in, in 2021. So any moonshot predictions on how this space will take shape in 2022 and how is it going to impact this space? What are you thinking about there? Because it, it's pretty meaningful. First off is metaverse means different things to different companies. And I don't think there is any one accepted Turn, you know, this is what the metaverse is for some of these gaming companies. Like I think Microsoft's acquisition of Activision, like that gives them a, it's basically just a game environment where there are going to be other things to do. You can buy stuff, you can set a meeting. Zuckerberg is talking about how, you know, if you go into the Facebook metaverse, you'll be able to sit at an office meeting and interact with your partners at your office in a metaverse environment. And okay. 
That's great. For somebody like Disney, I think the metaverse means something entirely different. If they can successfully transfer Disney Plus into a, an interactive environment where you can go in there, buy tickets to the theme park, see a character, do you know, make reservations for a movie, interact with the Disney characters and brand in a way that you can't currently do in any platform for Disney, that is something potentially very powerful. And it could help distinguish them from the other companies because what is the one thing that Disney has that these others don't? They have very, very good IP. And if you imagine, you know, if you go to see an Avengers movie and then you go home and you have your own Avengers experience via Disney Plus, that's a pretty compelling offering. And that's something that Facebook cannot offer. That's right. I mean, it's uh, it's going to be, I think you're right. It's, it's different for different people. Are you looking or spending any time sort of understanding, you know, whether it's crypto or the blockchain or really NFTs in terms of how that could change the digital, you know, how things get distributed or made or financed? Yeah, you're already seeing that. I mean, I just read a press release yesterday about Fox buying the Gumby property. Uh, Gumby and Pokey, remember those? Yeah. I remember them, they, yep. <laughs> they think they can reinvent Gumby, which is the whole separate challenge. But in the press release, they were saying, yeah, it's going to be, we're buying it to exploit it across, you know, film, television, digital, and blockchain. And I thought that was interesting that they're already thinking about that. So, so let me, let me ask you a question. I've, I have heard throughout the industry that the pandemic has really just given a, a kick in the butt to a lot of people and that entrepreneurship amongst studios, lawyers, agents, everyone in the industry has really increased since the pandemic. People are essentially taking an assessment of their lives and saying, you know what? I need to go out on my own. I need to do this that I've always talked about. Are you guys seeing that from a banking perspective? Because you are the first person that most people call, right? Absolutely. We're seeing it. It's it's pretty incredible. I mean, I think this is an industry that's always been very entrepreneurial, which is you know, why I think we're so focused on it and so good at banking it because it's it's our history. But I think this industry in particular, as you mentioned before, every movie star is its own brand, right? And now they're extending that brand into a lot of different places and things. And so it's always sort of a group that comes together. And I think it moves really quickly because there's so much, I mean, everybody's doing everything from, you know, it's not just the, oh, I, I was, I was in this and now I'm producing, or I was a lawyer and now I'm, they're investing, they're, they're thinking about ways to extend their brand. And so I think it's a pretty uh, extraordinary time in terms of creativity um, for the industry. And as you said, you know, people just have a lot of platforms to, to use, to do that. So uh, we're, we're seeing it, making sure we're um, on top of it. And, you know, a lot of the, you know, just a lot going on in terms of fund flows, setting up new companies, investing in new companies. It's a pretty exciting time for the industry. That's great. I always love to see Good. that. Now I'm one of them and now I'm an entrepreneur myself. You are, you are. And I, and I think the way you set up Puck is makes a whole lot of sense. One of the things I think the technology boom really drove is people seeing the value in equity ownership which is what you're giving right to your writers. You want you don't want to just produce for someone else. You want to have equity. That's the first pitch I make to prospective writers. I say, would you like to rent or would you like to own? And we just need more and more of that across the economy. And I think the other thing the entertainment industry can do is help make sure that's diverse. Um, because that's something that, you know, particularly in terms of ownership, whether you're talking equity ownership or you're talking investment in business or you're talking homes, we need to really make a lot more progress. That's part of the wealth gap in the U.S. And I think the entertainment industry is critical 
to helping everybody understand that and make progress on it. So I'm I'm excited about it. Yeah, it's it's a great time. I I, I hope it lasts. We'll see. But I, it, I it's a great time out there. <laughs> well, I think it will. You're, I think it will. The 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 economy's doing pretty well, and you know I think it's a you know we've got some cross currents to to go through this year. But this industry is one in particular that when you think about how people want to spend their time and the interest, it's. It's one that I think can weather any kind of storm that comes our way, but we're optimistic. That's good to hear. I love that. Uh, listen, I, I could talk to you all day, Matt. I really, really appreciate Thank you. Um, you spending time with us today. And I and this was incredibly thought-provoking, insightful, and definitely an industry that's changing rapidly. So everybody should be should be getting your newsletter and, and checking in with Puck to make sure they're staying on top of all the trends. So I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is great. Yeah, it's great to spend time with you. Thanks for listening. We hope you'll subscribe to Conversations so you'll never miss an episode. We have lots of great guests this season who will inform and inspire you. 